Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I am so pleased to welcome to this conversation, Valerie Kaur. Valerie is an activist and a lawyer, a civil rights advocate, and a, well, to me, kind of cultural phenomenon right now. And it's wonderful to welcome you to Good God, Valerie, and soon we will welcome you to Dallas because Faith Commons, our organization, is bringing you here. So let this be an initial welcome, and then we'll see you in person. Oh, I'm so honored to be here with you, George, and I cannot wait to see you all in person in Dallas. Terrific. Well, I'm going to hold up the book. I have another copy, a hard copy over my shoulder, so everyone should see it. And this is the paperback version. It's titled See No Stranger, A Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love. I I think I'd like to begin just even with the first word, Valerie, see, because I think in your book, you really tell us that this is a first step. Sometimes in our religious traditions, we become geared toward the things we believe primarily. And I've been challenged by Barbara Brown Taylor and others to think theologically in a different way first, and that is maybe before believing a holding. Mm, Beautiful. That, that we have to learn to see differently. And that leads us then to believe something different and behave differently, right? So I'd like you to unpack this language of see no stranger, which comes out of your own religious experience and your Sikhism. And I'd like you to talk about that idea a little bit with us as we begin. Nako beri nahi begana. Nako beri, nahi begana. I see no enemy. I see no stranger. This was the vision of Guru Nanak, the first teacher in the Sikh faith. He taught that we could look upon anyone or anything and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. (laughs) Uh, It's just an incredibly opening phrase, yes. (laughs) You know, when I was a little girl, George, that way of seeing came easily. It was effortless. I grew up in the farmlands of central California among the cows and the horses and the the orchards and the stars at night. I could see all of them. And it was as if I could look at anything, any anything around me and, and say, I, you are a part of me. I do not yet know. It was as if wonder and being wonder struck in, in our wow. faith. It's called Vismath, to live in Vismath, to live in the beholding, as you describe, is the primary orientation that invites us to love. Because if I see, you know, we begin with like the ant on the leaf and the bird in the tree, but if we begin to look at other faces and say, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, sibling, beloved, you are a part of me I do not yet know. I mean, that that way of seeing then shapes everything that we do. What, what questions we ask, you know, who who we sit next to on the school bus, where we choose to live, who we choose to love and marry, and ultimately what policies we support, what leaders we elect. It sounds like such a simple intervention to invite one to see through the eyes of wonder, but in fact is revolutionary because it shapes the world around us. And yet, 
while it should be natural and it should be easy, and it's part of the way we're made, it's a curiosity, a sense of wonder and awe, which is really at the beginning of all religious experience. Nonetheless, it becomes difficult. What are those things that get in the way of it, that make it hard work for us? Oh, I remember when it shut down for me. I was six years old <laughs> on the schoolyard. I was playing a house, so I was the baby, and my best friend was the mommy, and I was on my knees when a little boy ran up to me, a little boy I didn't know, older than me, and looked at me and said, get up, you black dog. Wow. I wanted to correct his mistake, George. I wanted to say, no, but we're playing house, not... But I saw the cruelty in his eyes and the way his lips curled, and I realized that nothing I could say could change how he saw me. To me, to him, I was black, I was brown, which made me black in his eyes, which made him superior and me inferior. It was my first lesson in white supremacy, but I had no language for it. And when you're that young, what, what it shows up as, they call it internalized oppression, but I feel like that little boy, I mean, what happened? The, the bell rang, he ran away, never saw him again. <laughs> and then I got to, you know, but I complied. I, I got up, I got off my knees and my friend who had was holding my hand, let, let go of my hand. And, and we walked back to the line in silence as if both of us, like the spell of our love had been broken by a messenger who, who brought a message that was actually not his. It was just came down through the centuries of white and black, of inferior and superior. And it was like she was learning her social location as I was learning, but I wasn't angry. You know, I was, I was ashamed. I was ashamed that I feel like that was the beginning of me hearing a voice in my own head that was like, you're, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not brave enough. You're not white enough. You're not Christian enough. <laughs> you know, you are not enough. And I think that, 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 um, severing that could have led to a complete shutdown in wonder for me. Cause if, Oh, you are going to see me as an other, then that immediately invites a mirror reaction. Well, I will, I will see you as a them. But when I went home to my grandfather, you know, in tears, it was just ikkom God. It was the it was the oneness at the heart of our faith. He just sang the shabbats, and he returned me to Nanak's vision. He said, "You have to even, <laughs> you have to refuse to hate others, even when they choose to hate you. To insist on wonder, to insist on seeing others as kin in this culture, so hierarchical and death obsessed, requires a vigilance." Right. It requires a vigilance. And so my whole life has been this power struggle <laughs> between the wise woman, the warrior woman that my grandfather projected in me because he would say, my dear, don't abandon your post. You know, I'm a little girl in two long braids, but he saw me as a warrior, you know, a warrior to walk this path of love. In, in our faith, the, the, the ideal is the Sant Sapahi, the sage warrior. The warrior fights, the sage loves. It's a path of revolutionary love. And my whole life has been this, been this power struggle between walking that path as the wise woman and the little critic who wants me to get strong, who wants me to get small, <laughs> who wants me to, to diminish others as, and diminish myself as I have been taught. But I have finally learned that that vigilance requires a sovereignty to follow that compass of love that we hold in our hands that our, our traditions have given us. And I think I'm not alone in this, George. I think 
So many of us have heard that call to love, have been struck by wonder early on in life only to see it shut down. And that means that if anything that I'm saying is resonating with you, it's just touching a, a wisdom that's already inside of you. It's just about how to surface it and strengthen it and strengthen it in our connections and our community that we can build around us. And that is the birth of beloved community. Well, that's beautiful. And I think that one of the things that those of us who have read your book, See No Stranger, have resonated with is your own story. Those who have just heard you talk about when you were six years old and and all of that, that's just, oh, that's just a taste. I mean, Brene Brown would be so proud, this vulnerability that you're sharing, right? That you really have opened up in some of the most intimate ways about your own sexual abuse and your own experience with racism and your own struggles that have given us a mirror to ourselves in many ways. But before it seems to me something can become a manifesto, the other part of your subtitle, this memoir idea uh, gives us access to how this love works in a person. Mm. I also think that, you know, from many of our traditions, we've begun to hear this phrase that all theology is autobiography in some way. And you've helped us, I think, in that way. Talk to us about your decision. It seems quite brave and courageous to have revealed so much. This this memoir idea, you haven't just said, I have a prescription for the world I'd like to offer. You've told us what it's cost you to say these words and to practice these things. Yeah, I'm getting a little emotional. <laughs> um, I never planned to say and to share everything I did. I, I don't, I don't really subscribe to the, you know, share the sensational story for the sake of it. No, I, 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 I had learned these hard truths through lived experience, both my communities and my own, and. I remember it was it was chapter four. It was it was a chapter on rage. And I was beginning to ask myself, how did I learn that anger was a practice of love? Like rage is the force that protects that which we love. Like, how did I learn that the hard way? Right. And that's when I discovered I well, it was through the sexual abuse and it was through the healing and it was through the and I went to my husband and I, you know, he's more private than I am. So I was like, okay, my love, let's, you know, <laughs> give me another way I can say these things so that I don't have to go there. And he looked at me and he said, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. <laughs> he said, don't censor yourself now. Pretend like no one's reading it. Just tell the truth on the page so you know for yourself how you learned that thing about love and then come back and then we'll decide together what goes in and what stays out. And so, ah. Uh, <laughs> fine, I have to do the work. You don't have to sit with all that trauma and work through it and figure out like, why am I even telling it? It feels feels like a curse. But when you when you find the meaning of it, it turns into a blessing because then you're sharing it with others who may be going through the same fires and can see that there's a way out and that they're not alone. And so I, I wrote it and I went to him at the end and he read it and so, <laughs> said like, well, it all, it all stays in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So the, the brave thing may be <laughs> let, letting it stay in. <laughs> Your mother, though, was helpful to you in, in, in yeah. dealing with that, too. And I think that's that's also uh, a powerful part of your story, too. When others were saying, 
uh, no, you should hold your tongue about these things, that uh, anger, rage is not appropriate and it doesn't bring about well-being and love and all of that. She uh, she stepped to your side and and coached you onward, didn't she? Yeah, that that moment in our ho- home, I'll, I'll never forget. We were in the um, near the front door and of our house. I just have this picture of our extended family, my immediate family, just so beautifully supported. But there were members of my extended family when I broke my silence around the sexual violence who didn't want me to speak out. And it was my mother who stood between, she put her body <laughs> between me and them. And there was fury in her eyes that I had never seen before. And, you know, my mother had an arranged marriage when she was 18. She struggled against a, a matriarchal figure in my mother-in-law who was quite abusive. My father and her finally found freedom, found stability, found peace. But she suffered a long time and, and she suffered and fought so that I wouldn't have to live the life that she did. So she she was standing between us and saying, not, not my daughter, no more. And that rage inside of her, I she my whole life, I couldn't see her summon that for herself, but she summoned it for me. And she was teaching me that my body was worth protecting, that my life had value and that I could summon it for myself <laughs> in order to fight for myself. And I, I think that's what, um, that's the great lie that so many women and women of color have been taught that, that rage is the opposite of love, that we're only as good or polite or lovable or spiritual as our ability to suppress our rage. But my mother taught me that, no, your, your rage carries information and energy and the solution is not to suppress it or to let it explode. Like so many men in our culture have been conditioned to the, the solution is to process our rage in safe containers like, like our ancestors did. So my mother, like the screaming and the sobbing and the shaking and the wailing, <laughs> you know, how much I did with her and the singing, you know, the dancing, the moving, moving that energy. And once that energy is on the outside of you, you can ask what information does this carry and how do I wish to harness this energy for what I do next? And I call that harnessed energy divine rage. Yeah. The aim Which, of divine uh, rage is not uh, vengeance. Uh, it is to reorder the world. <laughs> reorder the world. Exactly. Vengeance. So uh, so let, let's go to, to this idea. You talked about what you were feeling in your body. And much of this book is about honoring that very thing. That is, you you even you know use the imagery of birth and pregnancy and all those sorts of things to Tell us, tell us to pay attention to our bodies in this way. And it's a beautiful metaphor that even a man can pay attention to and, and learn from too. But, you know, pain is a gift to us to tell us something is wrong, right? And if we only medicate it, repress it or whatever, then we don't, we don't honor the way we're made and that gift. And so uh, I think so much religion is is taught about being ideas that you have, that to be spiritual is more in the world of ideas. But you've given us a, a theology of the body to follow that helps us practice whatever faith we have to 
reorder the world. Tell us about your sense of this connection to the body and why this is so important in revolutionary love. Oh, I love how you describe that. <laughs> the theology that comes from the body. And I would say perhaps comes from the land too, like to be able to read our bodies, to read land, to read space is, is a way to gather information for what we might be poised to do next in the practice of revolutionary love. Nanak said, higher than truth is the living of truth. So you're right. It's very much out of like a thing that we believe and rather it's a way of being, an orientation to a way of being. And the reason I think the body is so um, central as a site of information is that so many people ask me, because we developed this gorgeous revolutionary love compass, you know, love for others, love for opponents, love for ourselves, love for others, the practices see no stranger, love for opponents, the practices tend the wound, love for ourselves, that practices breathe and push, let joy in. And they asked me, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Where do I start? And I was like, you know, I could sit here and tell you what I think you should do. But if we just get quiet, your body has information for what you're ready for. For example, when it comes to loving, approaching our opponents with love, that practice is called tend the wound, but it begins with tending our own wounds. And so I'll ask someone, you know, at any given point, <laughs> there, there is um, a practice that you're ready for and that you're not ready for. Um, so when it comes to our opponents and wondering about them and listening to them, you know, bring to your mind's eye someone you consider an opponent, someone whose beliefs or actions um, have, have hurt you or people you loved. And oftentimes people go to the, the hardest opponent. <laughs> So I ask you to find someone that's a little bit easier to work with. You see their face in your mind. All right. Well, notice what's happening in your body as you picture them. Notice what's happening in your throat, your belly, your breath. Mm. If you are noticing a lot of activation, and it's really uncomfortable, like fire rising in the cage of you. Right? Like that's, that's information that this is not the time to wonder or reach out to that particular opponent. Your, your task, my love, is to tend to your own wound, your own healing. Let other people do that work. Give them permission to do that work. But if you are noticing just a little bit of discomfort, but there's still spaciousness inside of you to wonder about that opponent. Why? Why do they believe that? Why do they do that? What are they listening to? What stories are they clinging to that make them feel like this is the only way they can be in the world and be safe? Like what, what is their wound? And if those questions are arising from a genuine place inside of you, then that is information that you might be ready for that one conversation or to listen to that one story or to do that bridging work. Would I think at any that? given point, we have a different role <laughs> in the work of revolutionary love. That's why we are part of a movement, a broader community. Well, and, and this movement of a broader community is interesting because, you know, Faith Commons tries to say, we want everyone to bring their faith into the commons and to work together and we don't want you to leave your faith 
away from the commons so that you can come together. We want you to bring your faith. And then we will learn more of each other and we will learn more of ourselves because of that conversation. Much of this mindfulness that you're talking about, these practices of revolutionary love, come from your Sikh tradition, uh, a tradition, I think, in America that many people do not know very much about. We all know, and your book describes beautifully, just how often you are confused with Muslims and sometimes to tragic effect. But Sikhism is the fifth largest religion in the world, right? A half a million in America alone. And yet we know so very little about it, yet it informs your whole life. And in some ways, here you are in this moment of challenge in in America, stepping into a place of being a bridge person for us out of a minority place religiously and as a woman where All the power structures and hierarchies of our American tradition are being challenged now in a way that is actually, in my mind, uh, helping us to achieve the great ideals of our country to begin with. And this robust religious pluralism and true democracy. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you would just take a moment to say something about this sense of your place uh, personally and spiritually out of your tradition that you find yourself in? And how how does that strike you? Does it strike you as ironic in some sense, surprising to you to find yourself in this place? Oh, George, I feel it when you hold up a mirror. <laughs> this is what you did. You held up a mirror because I, as I was hearing you, I said, yes, you know, as, as a Sikh, as a woman, as a woman of color, as a mother, <laughs> from from the central valley and from farming farm country in california that little critic in me was so loud because all the messages i was getting from the powers that be are that you don't matter right your faith doesn't matter your view your stories don't matter you don't matter and only when i um you know you 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 said something about all theology being autobiography and i just want to add to that a layer of depth because I think it's ancestral biography as well. It's like only when I was able to reach inside of myself and feel my ancestors and the way that love coursed down through the generations, through them into me and gave me this way of seeing, could I sit in my sovereignty and say, no, I have something to offer. My people have something to offer that this struggle, you know, sit, I became an activist after 9-11, after a dear family friend was murdered. The first person murdered in a hate crime after 9-11 was Bilbir Singh Sodhi. And my entire life was spent jumping up and down, trying to get Americans, fellow Americans, to see us as victims. Just to know, this is before social, just to know that we were being killed was the goal. (laughs) And it wasn't until the massacre in Oak Creek 10 years ago that I realized that it's, it's not enough to be known you know, black people are known, indigenous people are known, and they're still oppressed. Like they're still, we need to be more than known. We need to be loved. And that means it's up to us to switch from like, we're not just victims. No, we are survivors. We are warriors. We are healers. We are teachers. We are visionaries. And we have something to offer America about what it means to stand in love, to see no stranger. (laughs) So it's taken me a long time to 
to um, embrace because I, you know, I've been in the interfaith movement for 20 years. I was, I was honored that I was just even in the space. You know, we could, we could say God and call him a he and have Christian prayers and Christian music and Christian setting. And none of it, none of it bothered me because I was just happy to be there. And I'm realizing that and now my fellow Christians are reaching out and saying, we don't want you just to be in the room. We want you to change the room. (laughs) You know, and so I, I have found that my journey has been um, sinking into and embracing the um, the particular point of view that I have been given, knowing that there is wisdom here that can push the United States as a whole. Because I, I believe you are right, George. I, the way that I am describing this era that we are all living in is that this is an era of great transition. Right. And that just like on the birthing table, Transition feels like dying, right? The crises come like contractions that are barely, now there's barely a minute between them, barely seconds between them before the next shooting, before the next images from the war, between the the next SCOTUS decision, between the next death toll from the pandemic. I mean, it's just upon us, upon us. There's barely time to breathe. And so it feels like dying. It feels like disarray. It feels like, it feels hopeless. And yet on the birthing table, transition is the stage that precedes the birth of new life. So that's why I return to the wisdom of the midwife when she says to breathe, my love, and then to push. There's a kind of cadence, a kind of rhythm to sustain oneself through any long labor. And this is the longest labor that we are faced with. Will we birth a multiracial, multi-faith democracy? Precisely. That has never been, you know, will we birth a species that learns how to live sustainably with the earth? This, all of us who are alive right now will shape that outcome for future generations. And so what we do right now and every, not just the big actions, the way that the the thousands of tiny gestures, the conversations, the encounters, the kind word, the the brave step, all of those shape what happens next. We are co-creating culture at every moment. And if at this moment, if everyone decided within them, wherever they were, in the classroom, at the boardroom, in the home, on the street, to, to see no stranger, <laughs> it wouldn't take that long <laughs> to transform our culture as a whole. And, and, and so that, that is the, you know, I was always, as an activist, I was always fixated on the march and the policy change. And I believe sound government is necessary but not sufficient, that the only way to transition our country and transition humanity is through a shift of culture and consciousness, a way of being and seeing that leaves no one behind. And that means each of us are midwives to that future that is longing to be born. And then every choice we make matters and is enough (laughs) and that you're not alone. And so my, I've spent the last 20 years of my life organizing around hate. I have made a, a, a sacred vow, a promise to spend the next 20 years of my life organizing around love, building this movement with you for revolutionary love. And we're eager to do it with you as well. (laughs) That's why I'm so excited to come to Dallas. (laughs) We're building it together. The energy I hear in you actually answers the question I wanted to get to sort of last, I suppose, almost last. And that is, you know, it's been almost six years now since the watch night service in Washington, D.C., when you stood up and said the future is dark. But is it the darkness 
of the tomb or the darkness of the womb. And since that time, we've had the January 6th insurrection, Capitol riot. We've had the social unrest that comes from Supreme Court decisions and, and so many other things. And we've just had the 10th anniversary of the Oak Creek Massacre, when there was such a tragic loss of life at the Gurdwara in, in Oak Creek, the Sikh temple. And yet I hear you all the more committed to the idea that we have to give birth. We have to accept that it's painful, like a death, for us to give birth to new life. But dark as it is, there's light ahead, and we have to be that. I want to show you my my heart, George. There, some days are so deadly that I can taste the ash in my mouth. And it feels like the darkness of the tomb. <laughs> Other days, I see people who have no obvious reason to love one another, come together <laughs> to grieve, to organize, to laugh, to dance, to eat, to serve, to become, inhabit, to embody the beloved community that we believe we can be. And that's when I, I see the darkness of the womb. I see glimpses of the world that is wanting to be born. I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to see it. But I know that the most meaningful way I can be alive is if I show up with my whole heart to my particular role in the labor when I am called. And we are all being called right now. Wonderful. Well, with that, I will just say what a joy it is to get to know you, to have read you, and to look forward to your coming to Dallas. For those of you listening in before Valerie comes, she will be with us on Thursday night, September 8th at Temple Emanuel, and also for a workshop at Paul Quinn College the next day. For those who want to go deeper and want to be part of this revolutionary love project here in Dallas. And you can go to our website, faithcommons.org, and you can register and come and join us. You can get a book there at that time as well and meet Valerie. Valerie, it's been a joy to get to talk with you in this time and can't wait to see you in person. I can't wait to be with my sisters, my brothers, my family. I can't be, be, wait to be with you, George. I'll see you soon. Thank you so much.